My hands, if they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee. Well, that was nice. Got that out of the way, I guess. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No way. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the world-famous broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove, out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and blanketing the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and many other fine affiliates, including... Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around sleep-deprived swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling action-packed adventure that we enjoy calling The Bradcast. Well, and then there were four. Uh, you know, for a while, watching uh, the debate on uh, on Thursday night on Fox News from Detroit, I thought Ben Carson was having his best debate so far. And then I realized he wasn't actually there. So instead, the four remaining major candidates, at least the announced ones at this point, more on that in a bit, uh, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and John Kasich had it out over everything from the size of their hands, if you know what I'm saying, to something representing actual policy issues, though most of it seemed ultimately to come down to the size of each candidate's hands, if you know what I'm saying. But at this point, that seems to be uh, par for the course for the entire state of GOP politics, and perhaps the only thing that actual Republican primary voters may seem to care about anymore in presidential elections. Following Donald Trump's dominance, taking seven states on Super Tuesday, the GOP establishment now seems to be falling into a very, very real panic mode, alternately coming to terms with the idea that Trump will be their nominee, fantasizing about various scenarios in which Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or even John Kasich could still win this thing, and conspiring about some fantastical plan for a contested convention in Cleveland this July where Trump fails to get a majority of delegates on the first ballot, thus freeing up all the delegates to vote for whoever they want thereafter. At which time, some white knight rides in to somehow take the nomination and save the Republican Party. How that all works and who that white knight would be in such a scenario remains, uh, well, a complete mystery uh, to me at this point. But that's what they actually seem to be talking about now. Either way, one of those three options 
seemed to be the rock-solid plan for the Republican Party at this point as primary election contests beginning on March 15th. And mark this date down, March 15th. Those states, March 15th and thereafter, become winner-take-all states in which a win by one vote in uh, Florida or Ohio, by way of just two examples, means that Donald Trump, if he is that winner would take all of the state's delegates and then it becomes pretty much impossible for anybody else to overtake him despite dozens of states left to hold primaries and caucuses. So the few remaining contests between now and March 15, including Michigan with a lot of delegates and now uh, are, are now incredibly important as to the remaining options for this party before they head to the convention in July. Joining us to make sense of it all, including last night's GOP debate, and I wish them both luck uh, today. Uh, my first guest, she has been a champion for the broadcast this election season to date, though I know she's uh, conveniently fleeing town next week when there are no less than three, count them, three debates currently scheduled. Heather Digby-Parton known simply as Dig Digby amongst longtime progressives online, where the Digby's Hullabaloo blog remains a staple. Heather is a regular contributor at Salon, 2014's Hillman Prize winner for opinion and anal analysis. I can never say it. Analysis, journalism. Heather Digby-Parton, uh, welcome back to the broadcast, Heather. Thank you for having me, Brad. Are you having fun this electoral season? Oh, boy. Or, or is there yeah. a real reason to generally be concerned about what's happening to our country right now? Yeah, and I shouldn't be, I should not be um, too cavalier about it. Of course, it's, it's from the perspective of a political junkie, it's never been better. From the perspective of a citizen and a human being, uh, this is one of the scariest ever, maybe the scariest ever. So, you know, mm. tempering both of those positions. Yeah, and that has not been easy this year. Joining us for his first broadcast debate coverage show, uh, and I wish him luck as well, Dave Johnson. Uh, he's a senior fellow camp at the uh, Campaign for America's Future. A lot of our uh, friends will perhaps know him from his uh, longtime blog, SeeingTheForest.com. He also writes at Huffington Post, Daily Coast, and everywhere else. Dave Johnson, welcome to the broadcast, my friend. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's great to be here for the first time. Uh, really uh, glad to have you. Uh, and I enjoyed, by the way, uh, a week or so ago, your comparison between Donald Trump and George Wallace, by the way. Can, can you give us a really quick recap? I don't know if you can do it in 30 seconds uh, of that piece, though. I probably can't because that was probably Terrence Heath. Oh, but uh, that was I, I, did do, I did do a great one about how, uh, how George McGovern framed that, yes, the uh, thank you. debate right now. So uh, I could talk about that, that a That's actually Ter what Terrence, I meant, yes. Well, a lot of the problem in the Democratic Party is, is this belief that you can't nominate someone who's too liberal because George McGovern lost almost every state. Mm -hmm. And you look back at that election, I hate to say it, but I'm so old I remember it. <laughs> yes. Uh, 1972, uh, second, uh, second campaign of Nixon. Mm -hmm. He'd been president for four years. George McGovern came along, and people say, well, he lost because he was so liberal. But let's, let's look at what happened. Watergate came along because of all the things, criminal things, that the Nixon campaign was doing, including knocking out all the candidates they thought they'd be, uh, have a harder time with. George McGovern had been a bomber pilot. He was a war hero, flew an incredible number of missions over Europe. Uh, the Nixon campaign framed him as a hippie. 
you know, acid and mm-hmm. stuff, and all of that sort of stuff. But what was really going on was the Nixon campaign had kept the Vietnam War going, and then a couple weeks before the election, they announced, hey, the war's over, we've cleared it up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That was a big factor in this. So if you want to look at George McGovern, who was a decent guy, had decent proposals, had a lot of experience running against the criminal mm-hmm. Richard Nixon, the manipulation of the election and all of those things, uh, and the criminal stuff we found out about Nixon later. George McGovern had great proposals. He was a good guy he had, and everything else. So the, the comparison to say that he lost because he was too liberal has been used to just again and again and again push the Democrats to the right. So I, I, that's what I wrote about. It was very good. I, I was yeah. very happy with it. No, it was an excellent piece. People can find it over at ourfuture.org. Is that where you've uh, posted that's that? That's where I post Very yeah. good. All right, before we get into the uh, GOP debate, as long as we're talking oh and yes desi doyan i always thank you for waving to <laughs> yes, me yes i'm here yes i know hello uh, desi doyan our producer is is here with us today as usual as well you, you holding up okay yeah yeah i'm all okay. right yeah. although there was no discussion of climate change at all in the gop debate so oh well were you expecting there would be not really okay there was talk about flint though that well i will try to get to today uh it was it was brief you had to pay really close attention but we'll get to that in a bit uh before the gop debate though, and since we were talking about Democrats, I wanted to, uh, Heather, uh, I want to get your thoughts here because uh, I've been complaining about this a lot on the show. Uh, right now, if you look up the contest between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, you will see that she is absolutely destroying him with more than a thousand dela- 1,058 delegates to Bernie's uh, barely uh, 431 delegates. But when you Look beyond that, and the mainstream media is not making this easy. Uh, It's the race is a lot closer because that number includes super delegates who are not pledged, who could vote for anyone they wanted at the uh, at the nominating convention. And if you get rid of that uh, and look at just who people have actually voted for. Hillary is still winning uh, pretty well, but not nearly that well. She's got 601 delegates to Bernie Sanders, 409. Now, I've been arguing this is irresponsible, the way that uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, Google, AP, etc., are reporting this by not making the distinction between super delegates, these unpledged delegates and regular delegates. I'm not a Bernie supporter. I'm not a Hillary supporter. But I find the way they're covering this to be a disservice to the electorate. Am I right or wrong about that, as, as you see it, Heather? No, you're right. And it's the second um, contested primary mm-hmm. in, <laughs> that we've had where this has come up. This was a big deal back in 2008, you'll recall, when, um, you know, they, I mean, the 2008 election was extremely close. And the superdelegates were a definite um, player in that closeness. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the fight over the superdelegates as as the c- contest wore on and, and uh, Senator Obama at the time started um, winning contests mm-hmm. and, you know, showing that he was contesting and people started, uh, these superdelegates started going over to him. It began to resemble this weird kind of backroom deal sort of doing that we used to see, you know, before the primaries. Yeah. It's an antiquated system. It really has no business being in it, and it, and, and they need to reform this, <clears throat> because I get that they feel that party officials and elected officials need to have, you know, some kind of an extra uh, weight in the in the choosing of the of the nominee, mm-hmm. but that's wrong. Well, <laughs> they really shouldn't. They well, should be, they should, it should just be straight up 
you know, who wins the most delegates, the end goodbye. And by the way, can I just add, it should also be primaries, not caucuses, which are, you know, as we've seen one more time, you know, one of the most bizarre uh, <laughs> you know, methods by which anyone can choose a nominee for, for uh, an office of this what? importance. So I, I don't think you're wrong at all. The, the media absolutely should break those delegates out. They should mm-hmm. never report it as she's got, you know, a thousand and he's got four hundred. That's just nonsense. And as it showed last time, and Clinton and her people know know very well, those delegates could move. They are That's not right. you know, they're not set in stone. Well, they could absolutely change their allegiances if it turned out that Sanders was was winning, or if, or for whatever reason, well, you know, listen, they just, and that's, something happens and they decide to change it. They have the ability to do that, that, and there's absolutely no reason to report that as being something set in stone, the way the delegate totals from the various states. Are. Uh, yeah, and that's my complaint. Look, uh, the Democratic Party, they can run the, you know, the election. I think the way they want. They're selecting their candidate, and you know, I suspect that the GOP is looking at this sil- super delegate system and saying, "God, I wish we had that," yeah, because that no they kidding. would use it now to stop uh, uh, Trump, but. Uh, the, the fact that the corporate media plays along with it is just really maddening to me, and it, and it just gives the electorate a completely inaccurate idea of what's actually going on. We've got a lot of states coming up with a whole lot of delegates. Uh, Bernie Sanders, yes, he is up against it, but not nearly the way it's being reported by so many out there. All right, let me... Um, Let's get to the uh, let's get to the the GOP debate. Uh, And and it was almost as insane as the one late last week. Uh, It's getting uh, pretty difficult to tell the difference now because they're just all getting crazy. But with the whooping and hollering from the audience, uh, Dave Johnson, uh, since you use this phrase, I'll use it as well. I'm old enough to remember when debate moderators used to actually ask audiences to not cheer, not clap, not boo. That's all over with. Uh, Why? Is this just a natural progression, or is it because, well, uh, you know, at this point, Republicans and maybe Democrats alike love uh, elections as uh, wrestling matches instead of, you know, policy conversations? Well, actually, I think what happened last night was that Fox News was getting a cut of the alcohol concession at the things. So. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, really. Uh, I'm so old, I remember when uh, Bill Clinton was asked <laughs> if it was boxers or briefs, and the whole country was shocked. Yes, so, yes. Yeah, that debate was raucous. It was, uh, it was not something you'd want your kids to see. It was empty of policy. And I think we're going to see Trump's poll numbers go way up after it, I think. But we'll see. Wow. I have my own ideas about what what Trump's big appeal is. So it was embarrassing. We saw that word a lot. But from the that's all from what we might call the elite class. And and that uh, that uh, audience was filled, in fact, with the elite class. Uh, It it was uh, it was a remarkable spectacle that will go down in history if if we still have a history if Trump Mm. becomes president. But. So uh, yeah. I, I just I I wasn't really going to watch it, and I tuned in, and I just sat there with my mouth agape. Yeah, you know, I, as it unfolded, it, it was really something to see. But the the absence of substantial policy issues is probably the most remarkable thing to me. I I'll let all the rest of that stuff slide, except for the fact that these guys are supposed to be talking about governing a country. Well, it and, wasn't to me not only that it was substance-free, but when they did offer substance, it was often flat-out wrong, I mean, based on a lie. You know, you can right. go back to what Ted Cruz said about North Korea. Uh, you can go back to any number of things that well, they said in there. The policies were just flat-out 
I, I, I hesitate to call them lies, but perhaps I should. And we'll get into the poli- the actual things, the actual policy uh, in, in a few minutes here. I'm st- I still want to get this helicopter view uh, because it seemed like is it my imagination are the candidates and the media the fox news in this case and we'll we'll go into specifics on this too but it seems like they're finally getting serious about taking on trump i don't know what took them so long uh but as uh, josh marshall uh uh, said uh wrote last night i think he said uh, once trump pulls you down to his level even when you fight back you're still down at his level and he's better at this (laughs) than you are uh, that kind of seems like what we're up against at this point between these uh, between these folks. And Heather, let me get your take on this as well. Um, you know, the the delegate uh, count here. As much as I've been complaining about the way the media has been reporting the the Democratic count, in truth. The GOP delegate count is much closer than the Democrats. Uh, I think Trump leads 329. Cruz is not far off. Well, 231 behind him. Rubio, 110. Um so why does it seem so impossible to consider anybody else still being able to beat Donald Trump at this point, Heather? Well, I think the main reason is is that the one that has the best chance or would have the best chance if the party consolidated around him is Ted Cruz, and they can't stand him any more than <laughs> they can stand Donald Trump. This has been, and I've been writing about this at Salon for months, yeah. this has been the big dilemma uh, for the Republicans. Their, quote, establishment lane turned out to be, and remember when they all said before this happened, they've got this deep, deep bench, they're all so terrific, what an embarrassment of riches, the Democrats are all a bunch of old losers who don't have anybody, anybody of the next generation, blah, blah, blah. Well, we watched them all go down one after the other, right, from from Walker to Jindal to Perry, and finally, you know, ending with, with Jeb Bush, who was their, you know, their great establishment hope. So what has always been clear to me for months and months is that there were two candidates who were actually running, <laughs> forgetting all that mm-hmm. other stuff, and who actually had the, the hearts and minds of the Republican Party. One is Ted Cruz, the, the, nom- the candidate of the, of the hardcore conservative movement as we have known it, and the, Donald Trump, the candidate of the right-wing, white nationalist, um, authoritarian side of the Republican Party. What does not exist is the establishment. They don't have any voters anymore. The, that is the Republican Party. That is their coalition, and they just can't accept it. So I just took a look at this this week. I'm looking at these, at these, you know, these numbers, these yeah. delegate numbers. Cruz is in striking distance. Yep. If they actually did get behind him, and he's begging them to, he's going, please, you know, prayer, <laughs> say a prayer and see what God tells you. You know, he's yeah. begging people. Look, I'm the guy who has is closest, and I have a chance. Now, I don't think he does really, because I don't believe that the that the Republican Party it turns out that a lot of the evangelical voters that Cruz thought he had are actually disco evangelical voters who are more. You know, they're into into uh, you know rich guys who ride around in mm-hmm. in, uh, in in fancy planes um, more than they are into helping the poor. Uh, so that's a different group of evangelicals. In fact, I think Sarah Posner wrote a piece this morning where she called them the Trump evangelicals. Well, it's the a whole whole different group. We, anyway, we talk- as it turns out, Ted Cruz does not have a lock on probably enough people within the party to beat Trump, but nonetheless. If one were to really be serious, you'd get behind Ted Cruz right now, and they just cannot bring themselves to do it. They hate him more. They would rather lose. They would rather have Trump, I think, in the end, and lose the Republican Party 
than have crews and potentially uh, keep the party together. I think it's that. I think it's that much personal loathing they have for that guy. And I keep wondering what in the heck did he do to these people? Uh, what, yeah, what, I know. What was the crime? No kidding. But it has been helpful because we talked about it on yesterday's broadcast with um, uh, UNC's uh, Jonathan Weiler, professor uh, who, who wrote about authoritarianism and the rise of authoritarianism yep. in this country. Uh, and how uh, Trump has just rode in and has sucked up that vote and has exposed the fact that, you know what, these Republicans, they're not necessarily conservative, they're not evangelical. What they are is authoritarian, and uh, Trump so far has been, uh, you know, the big winner because of that, because he's realized that and has pulled all of those people on board. i got to get to a a break here, but before I do, Dave Johnson... um, The uh, latest, I mentioned it in the opening here, the latest reported strategy for the GOP uh, seems to be now to, you know, keep enough people in the race, Cruz and Rubio and Kasich, keep them in long enough to keep Trump from winning 50 percent plus one and then selecting a candidate of their own choosing at a contested convention. Uh, Really? And and along those lines, because I think this is sort of a part of the strategy, did Mitt Romney's full brutal full frontal attack on Trump uh, as a as a phony and a fraud on Wednesday did that do on Thursday I should say did that do any damage to uh, to Trump's chances here I, I tie him in because I think he may be hoping he is that white knight that comes in and saves them somehow in uh, in Cleveland your your thoughts on that Dave well I think that Romney combined with the attacks we saw combined with this idea that they can somehow maneuver him out at the convention, I think they are fundamentally incapable of understanding Trump's real appeal. There's the xenophobic, racist side of it, the authoritarian side, but Trump's core appeal is that we have this terrible situation where on both sides, the elites of the country have essentially sold out people, sold out the middle class, sold out the poor, moved jobs out of the country so they can put more money into their own pockets and that is the core of what trump is hitting at every time he speaks and and part of his immigrant bashing he says they're taking your jobs that a lot of it's not accurate and so but remember that romney's attack part of it was that trump is against trade deals people have come to see the trade deals as a lot of their their problem with mm-hmm. the economic anxiety they feel, and they get that, and, and that is a very big deal. It's been a big deal for a long time. The Trump gets that, and the rest of the party is uh, systemically incapable of going after that because the donor class that runs them is is doing so well from those. And until they can go after that, they can they can attack him for not being lined up with conservative orthodoxy. Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. all the things they were trying to attack him for. But the fundamental thing that his support is about is that people feel this anxiety, this economic anxiety. They feel that the Republican leadership has betrayed them and not given them and keeps offering tax cuts for the rich, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that they don't feel any better. And Trump comes along and says, hey, I'm going to bring a lot of jobs. It's going to be beautiful. And they hear that. So I think... That, that that is what's the core of what's going on here with Trump. And they are not attacking that because they can't. And until they can attack that somehow, Trump will continue to dominate in their side of the primaries, I think.
And uh, Heather, uh, thirty seconds. What would uh, what would the response be from Trump's you know almost majority of delegates if you get to the convention in July? I mean, is this even realistic? What what would the response be from you know Trump supporters if the party comes in in Cleveland and says, "Yeah, we're going to put someone else forward after all of this, uh, put a, forward a, a Mitt Romney or anybody else?" I mean, is this even thinkable at this point? Of course not. <laughs> I've got two words for you, uh, or I've got four words for you. <laughs> Ohio is open carry. Uh, oh this man, is not going to be. These are not the kind of people who are going to allow this, and if by chance they manage to get it done i think they will go out they will either not vote or they will encourage trump to run third party and that will be that they're not going to just sit back and go well okay let's all you know let the healing begin i mean please these are trump voters that's not happening so totally fantastical as as you see it now totally fantastical that there could be a a contested convention at this point well, I think they could try it, and I, I suspect they will. But I don't think uh, that it's – I mean, it will be uh, – you want to talk about 1972 or 1968? I mean, in 1968, there was fighting in the streets. Uh, this time it will be inside the convention, <laughs> and yeah. they may be armed. So just uh, – <laughs> listen. Well, again, the political junkie in me says, oh, please, oh, please. The citizen and human being says, oh, my God, <laughs> what, 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 what are they thinking? Let yeah. me quickly throw in the same thing with the Democrats. If, if Bernie comes into that convention with one more delegate than Clinton and then they try to do it with superdelegates, that will not have a pleasant outcome either, I have to say. I think you're both right on that on that count. Uh, let me take a quick break, and we'll come back, get into the debate proper uh, with uh, some clips that are uh, sometimes amazing, uh, sometimes maddening, and sometimes just really funny. This is Brad Friedman on your broadcast uh, with the Dave Johnson and Heather Digby-Parton and Desi Doyen. Don't go away. Much more to come. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. By taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. You know, I think the American people understand that yelling and cursing at people doesn't make you a tough guy. We need a commander-in-chief that, number one, will rebuild the military, just like Ronald Reagan did in 1981, coming out of the weak Jimmy Carter administration. He passed tax reform and regulatory reform. The economy took off. It generated millions in high-paying jobs, trillions in new revenue. He rebuilt the military, bankrupted the Soviet Union, and won the Cold War. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, cut him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Oh, yeah, write him in. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman, 
from bradblog.com with you here. It's our uh, debate coverage following the uh, GOP debate on Fox News from uh, from Detroit on Thursday night. All right. Uh, and with my guests, Heather Digby Parton of Salon and Dave Johnson of the Progressive Campaign for America's Future. Uh, early on in the debate, uh, the Fox moderators, Chris Wallace, uh, uh, Brett Baer and, and Megan Kelly, demonstrated that they were going to be a bit tougher on the candidates this time around, at least on Donald Trump, uh, more so than, frankly, most of the moderators have been at all to date in these Republican uh, uh, debates and, and even in the Democratic debates uh, with follow up questions and so forth. Uh, early on, there was an example where uh, Wallace, using full screen slides, had asked Donald Trump about his claim to uh, end deficit spending by cutting waste, fraud and abuse while offering huge tax cuts at the same time, which would cost you know hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to the government. Trump explained his plan to fix the federal government's $544 billion deficit would be to uh, kill the Department of Education, which only uh, costs about $78 billion a year, and the EPA, which costs just $8 billion a year uh, in, in the budget. Uh, Wallace said, your math doesn't add up. Trump disagreed. With those facts, arguing, for example, that his health care plan, uh, thanks to uh, his call to negotiate prescription drugs for Medicare, could save hundreds of billions of dollars. Because of the fact that the pharmaceutical companies are not mandated to bid properly, they have hundreds of billions of dollars in waste. You're talking about hundreds of billions no, of dollars no, you're not. if we went out to the proper bid. Of Let course me, you no, are. No, you're not, sir. Let's put up full screen number two. You say that Medicare could save $300 billion a year negotiating lower drug prices. But Medicare total only spends $78 billion a year on drugs. Sir, that's the facts. I'm Care saying saving through negotiation throughout the economy, you'll save $300 billion And that's a huge... Of course it is. We're going to buy things for less money. Of but course it is. That the works only out. money that we buy, the only drugs that we pay for is through I'm Medicare. I'm not only talking about drugs, I'm talking about other things. We'll save more than $300 billion a year if we properly negotiate. Uh, Heather Digby Parton, credit due to Chris Wallace for finally uh, trying to do some fact checking on Trump's nonsense. <laughs> well, yeah, it is kind of surprising, although I would have liked to have seen them do the same thing to the other candidates up there who have also offered equally absurd um, numbers for their plans. But still, it was good to see it. And you could tell that they had been looking, you know, look, they're part of the Republican establishment, too. And the idea of stopping Trump, uh, you know, that has been part of the Fox News uh, plan for some time as mm -hmm. well. So it, I can't say that it surprised me. Can I just say one thing yeah. about, about Trump's uh, plan for saving money. I mean, the idea, his pharmaceutical plan, which, you know, this sounds actually pretty good when you just hear it, right? He's going to save money by uh, doing, you know, doing competitive, he's going to, to save money by, by putting out, uh, by getting competition into the drug, drug program of whatever our health care 
plans are. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to even say it because it's so absurd. Well, you you got to get rid of the, what, uh, the get rid of the state lines, get state rid borders. Of the state lines, puts, and, and in fact, he yeah. came out with a health care plan this week that shows that basically what he's going to do is get rid of pre-existing conditions and give tax cuts to rich people. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, that's his health care plan. You say that like reasons. it's a bad thing, Heather. <laughs> uh, I know, I know. But you see, that will that will undoubtedly stimulate the economy. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. that's right. But the competitive bidding thing on the part on the drugs is very interesting to me because he says that we will get the drug prices down if we do competitive bidding. Now, he is not confining that to Medicare or, or the VA or any of the other government-run programs, Medicaid. He's talking about across the board, which means that he thinks somehow that he can get he can get private insurance companies to also do competitive bidding. Moreover, he does not understand that they have patents on these drugs. Mm-hmm. And the way you do competitive bidding, if you were to do it, and there is a possibility, you would do it with foreign countries, right? You would say either you match the amount of money that, we, we, that Canada or India or, heaven forbid, Mexico pays for their drugs. <laughs> right. And if you don't do that, then we're going to go there. Now, imagine him saying that to his crowd of people who, you know, are, are want to build a wall, you mm, know, that only yeah. Jack and the Beanstalk could get over down on the southern border. Mm. So, you know, this is this is the nonsensical side. You know, this is what it's one thing that makes him so powerful. He didn't even try to make sense. And so those of us who sit there and try and sort it out and we look at his plan or listen to him talk and whatever, we end up having a huge headache and just want to go to bed because it's so completely ridiculous. But that's fine because the people who are voting for him don't care about the details. They just like the way it sounds. And by the way, underneath it all, this guy is still a New York plutocrat who was born into money and has had money his whole life and cares this much about the working man. Believe me, this is not a sound like Trump now. Believe me. Uh, But (laughs) this guy is not somebody who, if he were to ever get in office, would do one thing for working people in America. I guarantee you, if he if he ends those trade deals that, that he is so bad about, he, you notice he doesn't talk a lot when he's talking about ending his trade deals with China and renegotiating them. Who's he negotiating them on, be, on behalf of? Because he's always saying, I just want to get, uh, I just want us to make money or at least break even. Who's he talking about? I think he's talking about the manufacturers, because I sure don't hear him talking about how he's going to raise, it's going to raise any wages. That, of course, so is... That's just my perspective. I think he's full of it, personally. That, of course, is uh, Donald Trump supporter Heather Digby Parton. <laughs> I want to uh, uh, turn to uh, to Dave Johnson. Well, actually, I'll turn. Th- this was um, th- this reported off the record conversation uh, with The New York Times on Donald Trump's immigration uh, rhetoric. Uh, the claim being, I think it was BuzzFeed first reported it, if I if I have that correct, that. Trump had an off-the-record conversation that was actually recorded with the New York Times in which he admitted, well, you know what, he wasn't such a uh, hard-ass on immigration and that he was basically using this position, this would be a a starting position in a negotiation, and that he didn't really mean it. And apparently there is a tape of this somewhere uh, with the New York, not somewhere, at the New York Times, that the New York Times uh, recorded this off-the-record conversation with Trump, but they are not releasing that tape because it was off-the-record. 
and they can't release it uh, uh, ethically without the permission of Donald Trump. And uh, both Rubio and Cruz pushed him on this matter uh, last night. Here's a, a little bit of uh, Marco Rubio uh, and Megan uh, Megan Kelly of Fox News pushing Donald Trump on this. Well, first of all, <clears throat> let me say that on the issue of the off the record, that's not up to the New York Times. That's up to you, Donald. If tonight you tell the New York Times to release the audio, they will do it, and we can exactly see what your true views are on immigration. Fine. Because it is a major issue in your campaign that you've made a center issue. Will you release the tape? No, authorize I the never time do to... that. I don't. I would not do that. I don't think. I have too much respect. If I deal with you off the record, if I deal with Brett or Chris off the record, I have too much respect for that process to say, just release everything. I would not do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dave Johnson, uh, Marco Rubio is right. The off the record process is for the source. It's not for the journalist. If the source, who is Donald Trump in this case, said release that tape, I'm fine with it. This would not violate anything at the New York Times. Would you like to explain how uh, how how this works uh, for for journalists, Dave? Oh, that's right. If if Trump said, well, the the off the record part is so somebody can speak freely mm-hmm. and not worry about what he says showing up in print, but you want to let the reporters know the real background of what's going on so they can report your side of the story a little better. Uh, I suspect that he talked about his strategy for beating Cruz and others is why he won't release it. The, the, the Cruz and Rubio, they're playing what you would call, you know, the old-style gotcha politics, because he's probably on there saying, look, I, I'm saying I'll deport 20 million, but of course we're going to go into negotiations, and of course we're going to do this, but it's going to take, you know, he hedged, he was flexible and stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. what I expect, and they're going to be able to say, gotcha, you said you're going to do this, but you're a hypocrite or something. And, <laughs> and I really think there's probably other reasons he doesn't want to release it. Well, it could be he just doesn't want to play the gotcha game. Th- well, they could. They don't have yeah. to release the whole thing. He can give them permission. Yes, you can release my remarks on on just that issue. He could. could he could. Yeah. I, I think the, the first clip that you played of Cruz yeah. goes more to the point here, because Trump's strategy is to be as general as possible and just say, look, we know how to do this. It's going to be beautiful, and it works. He talked about we're going to, all I'm going to do is bring jobs, and it's going to be beautiful. What you heard Cruz there was trying to bamboozle people with facts and figures, and the problem was all of those facts and figures were just preposterously wrong. That that Reagan cut taxes and raised trillions of dollars of revenue and created millions of jobs. Actually, I, I mean, you, you can go back to the record and see that that is absolutely not what happened, but. So but that's it doesn't, Dave, wish, does you know, it matter? That, that Cruz could be the candidate because he can be beaten on those things. But Trump, with his generalities, I don't know. I, oh, I've got to throw in one thing. Yeah. Under Bush, we passed that Medicare uh, drug plan that prohibits the government from negotiating drug prices with the pharmaceutical companies. The, the congressman who ushered that through immediately left and became head of mm-hmm. the pharma lobbying thing for $10 million a year. And it, it, it is just a big scam, but the numbers are nowhere near what Trump was saying. You will never get a Republican to actually say in public what it what they would cut in order to what they say balance the budget, because the public would revolt immediately at the ideas of the things that that they would be losing. And that I, I was have to throw that in. That was a uh, you you mentioned that was a Republican uh, uh, Congress. What was his name? I'm I'm trying to remember what his name was. Yeah. I Bill almost Fritz. have it too. Who was it? Tawson, wasn't it? Fritz. Oh, oh, Fritz. Yeah, Tawson. Ah, yes. Oh, that's right. Yep. That's right. And, yep. and so it would, there he is again, going 
against the donor class, the Republican orthodoxy, the whole Republican machine that depends on that kind of corruption. Which kind of gets me to a point that I wanted to to get here as well. And I I think, uh, Dave, you you also sort of cited something uh, that made me think of this. Uh, You know, Marco Rubio, for example, he was asked uh, during the debate if he was willing to put U.S. troops on the ground in Libya. And since he has called, apparently, for boots on the ground in, in, in Syria, how does he justify not also calling for boots on the ground? Uh, now, I couldn't make much sense of his answer, frankly, but it occurred to me while watching it that there are so many positions of the Republican Party at this point that just have become utterly untenable. You know, and, and the prescription drugs is, you know, is one thing here. You've got, you know, of course, we should somehow be able to negotiate, uh, you know, Medicare, Medicaid should be able to negotiate for these uh, for these drugs. So much is spent. But it was Republicans who opposed the government being able to negotiate prices down. So, you know, uh, the same is true. Uh, for, well, boots on the ground when it comes to uh, places like Syria and Libya, because I think even, you know, the Republicans at this point, I should say a huge swath of the voters in any in any case, hate what happened in Iraq. So they don't want to go into Syria. They That's don't right. want to go into Libya. Same is true for torture, uh, health care, as you mentioned, marriage equality, global warming. I mean, GOPers actually want clean air and, and renewables, I think, the voters. But that's in conflict with the party funders. They are backed into so many corners on virtually everything after all of these years, position after position. Uh, Heather, let me get your thoughts on that. I mean, I don't know how they they seem like they're getting to a point where nothing makes sense anymore for this party. You've got this network, Fox, and you got Limbaugh, and they're all watching Fox and listening to Limbaugh, and they're just making stuff up (laughs) and scaring people and saying this and saying that and spinning off into this world of unreality, and so the candidates have to be there, and it just so much confronts the reality of what's really going on. A big one is ISIS, and like you said, troops on the ground. Well, you know what? President Obama has asked Congress for uh, an authorization to use military force, and the Republicans are refusing to allow that to come up for a vote. They won't even debate it. They they spend all of their time saying, uh, you know, Obama's not doing enough against ISIS, but they won't even debate it. Let me me get Heather's uh, thoughts on this. Ring in on this. Is this... How long can this go on before it I don't breaks the party. Are are, are are Republican voters still that brainwashed that they don't understand this disconnect on issue after issue after issue between what the Republicans say and then what they actually do? Well, I think I, I probably have a slightly different take on this than than you do, which is that yes, I think you're absolutely. We're watching the re, the breakup, the big conservative crack up that people have been talking about for years, and we're watching it unfold. Uh, but I don't think it's about issues. I don't think it's about these issues. I think that there is a general sense of discontent. But I think that because of what you said, Dave, that, you know, they're listening to right-wing radio. They're to the extent they pay close attention. They're list- they're reading Newsmax or Free Republic or whatever else. And that that kind of of media and instruction doesn't tell them what we we think it's telling them it's you know it, it it's not telling them that oh the republicans are wrong about taxes and they're wrong about you know this that and you know, they're wrong about medicare that's not what that's not what they're hearing i don't believe it now maybe i'm out of step here but what i hear when i hear these people interviewed for the trump voters across the board pretty much 
their first thing is, is they say he's going to make America great again. We're mm-hmm. getting clobbered by everybody overseas. We are being humiliated. I think because I'm, we, they are winning and we are losing. The second thing they say is Donald Trump is a businessman. He knows what he's doing. He can take charge. He can make these changes. I, I'm now, not so I much just, saying, I just Heather, don't let see me... that tracking with them being really a lot more liberal than we think they are. I don't think it's about, I don't think it's about having progressive ideas that, you know, maybe it does under the surface, but on the, from what they are consciously thinking, and what they're saying out loud is that they want a, a uh, an authoritarian white yeah. nationalist leader who will put foreigners in their place and will put dissenters in their place here at home and will close the doors and tell everybody to stay away now and i don't believe for a minute that this also means that he's some kind that they think he's some kind of a passive pacifist or an isolationist their idea is he will kick but mm-hmm. and they will learn that they can't mess with the United States. Well, and, and to be clear, let me let me just jump in. Deeper than that. Let me jump in, Heather. I, I, to be clear, I wasn't talking about uh, necessarily the issues that the voters that the reason why they're going to, to to Trump as much as I'm saying that it seems to me that on position after position. The Republicans have backed themselves into a corner. You know, there was a quite reasonable uh, moment from uh, from Trump where he I think it was from Trump where he talked about having, you know, he's changed his mind on certain issues. That makes perfect sense. Over a number of years, people do evolve on positions. But, you know, back in 2004, the Republicans went uh, you know, to the mattresses on uh, this uh, flip flop charge against John Kerry. And thereafter, anybody who ever changed their position on anything, uh, you know, that was out of bounds in the Republican Party because they went all in on, uh, you know, flip flopping is bad. You can never change a position on anything. And now I think they're paying a price for all of these things they've done over these years, all of these ridiculous positions that they've taken that they can't now get out of. You can't say that, uh, you know, we need to go into Syria or Libya. Uh, You know, after saying the war in Iraq was a terrible mistake. I mean, anyway, it it just doesn't see I I think they're backed into a corner on so many. Yeah. And let me just let me just say, I absolutely agree with you on that. And and what, what Trump has exposed is the absolute bankruptcy of conservative orthodoxy. None of they don't care about any of that. Right. (laughs) What they heard were the dog whistles. Trump isn't dog whistling. He's saying it right out loud. And that's what they like about him because he is not dog whistling. (laughs) And and that is what the Republican Party betrayed them on. The rest of these issues, I think, were always kind of these, you know, they were they were more like they were symbols uh, rather than being any than specific. Let me get one. Let me get one more uh, very quickly in because we do have to get to a break again. Uh, This is uh, clip eight, because I think this this is actually something that could be hard to deal with. Uh, this is uh, about this Trump University uh, scam that Donald Trump was pulling off. And suddenly uh, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio realized they could use this. This this seems like a, a, a real thing that could really hurt Donald Trump uh, if he is the nominee in uh, in November. This is why this is relevant to this. All right, Cruz, why, because he's trying to do to the American voter what he did to the people that signed up for this course. He's making promises. He has no intention of keeping it. And it won't just be $36,000 that they lose. It's our country that's at stake here. And he's trying to con people into giving them their vote, just like he conned these people into giving them their money. Let me tell you, the real con artist, excuse me, excuse me, 
The real con artist is Senator Marco Rubio, the who was elected in Florida and who has the worst voting record in the United States Senate. He scammed people. He doesn't vote. He scammed the people. Understood. He defrauded the people of Florida. Well, meow. Uh, sore point for you, Donald Trump. Seems like he really drew some uh, blood there. Uh, is is this Trump University a real uh, problem for him? Let me get each of you 30 seconds before I get to this break. Dave, go first. Well, first of all, I heard Trump just masterfully deflecting that. Uh, yeah, it is going to be a problem for him in the long term. But, God, Rubio trying to come up against him on that when Rubio never shows up in the Senate and votes. It's such an opening for Trump. <laughs> he was good at that. But uh, you're not going to get Trump with gotchas. I'm not sure how they're going to get him, but it's not going to be with this kind of gotcha stuff. Uh, it, it, the universities may be a path to that. Heather, uh, very quickly, your thoughts? I think people just sort of factor in the fact that he's a hugely successful businessman and some things work and some things don't. So I don't think they hold it against him. He also missed a a chance, though, to go after Rubio on Corinthian University, which was a similar defrauding, uh, you know, fraudulent Mm. uh, thing that that Rubio backed. Well, that was his his bad. That kind of makes my earlier point. It's really hard for these guys to call out anything and to take (laughs) any position because they've got so much of their own hypocrisy and baggage to have to deal with. All right a quick break and we are back with our final segment uh, on the Fox News Thursday night debate in Detroit uh, with my guests uh, Heather Digby Parton of Salon Dave Johnson of Campaign for America's Future and yes Desi Doyen is still here I'm Brad Friedman and this is your broadcast. don't touch that dial You all wrote me off. You wrote me off before I even got to New Hampshire. Then when I finished second in New Hampshire, you wrote me off in the South. Then you wrote me off in the uh, in Super Tuesday. Do you know what people say, Brett, to me all the time? Why don't they give you any time on the debate stage? Why is that? No time for you. On my way to better Welcome back to the broadcast. Poor John Kasich. Poor John Kasich. Poor reasonable... John Kasich, or at least the guy who appears to be reasonable compared to these other people. Yes, he's still in the race, and yes, he still could win Ohio. Uh, Brad Friedman from the Bradcast here with my guests uh, Heather Digby-Parton of Salon and Dave Johnson of Campaign for America's Future. Uh, In the last few minutes of our GOP debate coverage for now, I'm told there are three more debates, really, next week. Uh, One of them uh, over the weekend, uh, Sunday, I guess, for the Democrats in Flint, Michigan, which did come up finally last night. The debate was in Detroit, after all. Um, uh, Brett Baer, his question itself I have a problem with. Uh, Let's let's play Brett Baer's uh, one question on the uh, poisoning disaster in the drinking water that is still ongoing in Flint, Michigan. Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton have both been to Flint. Without getting into the political blame game here, where are the national Republicans' plans on infrastructure and solving problems like this? If you talk to people in this state, they are really concerned about Flint on both sides of the aisle. So why haven't GOP candidates done more or talked more about this? So that was the question, and I thought, well, great, finally, a question about Flint. <clears throat> one. Uh, but isn't the answer, uh, Dave Johnson, uh, to his question uh, within the question itself, he says, without getting into the political blame game, how can you even have this conversation uh, at this point? Actually, let me let me play the second uh, clip and then we'll go to you both. Um, here was uh, Rubio's answer to that question. 
Well, I know I've talked about it, and others in our campaign have talked about it, and other candidates have talked about it as well. What happened in Flint was a terrible thing. And by the way, the politicizing of it, I think, is unfair, because I don't think that someone woke up one morning and said, let's figure out how to poison the water system to hurt someone. But accountability is important. I will say I give the governor credit. He took responsibility for what happened. And he's talked about people being held accountable and the need to change this, Governor Snyder. But here's the point. This should not be a partisan issue. The way the Democrats have tried to turn this into a partisan issue, that somehow Republicans woke up in the morning and decided, oh, it's a good idea to poison some kids with lead. It's absurd. It's outrageous. It isn't true. All of us are outraged by what happened, and we should work together to solve it. And there is a proper role for the government to play at the federal level in helping local communities to respond to a catastrophe of this kind, not just to deal with the people that have been impacted by it, but uh, to ensure that something like this never happens again. So uh, politicizing this issue is unfair. Give the governor credit. Really? Desi Doyen, uh, w- would you like to uh, take your 30 seconds to respond to the well, good senator? Yes, yes, yes. Because, of course, nobody, nobody has ever suggested that anyone was intentionally poisoning the people of Flint. This was entirely a result of lax regulation of an attempt by Governor Snyder to use his emergency manager law to completely circumvent democratic rule in the city of Flint and to cut costs. The emergency manager put these procedures into place that literally directly caused the lead poisoning of the people and especially the children of Flint. And if you notice, none of the Republicans put forth any policy that would help the people of Flint right now, who, as you noted, still have an ongoing lead poisoning problem. Uh, there should uh, there was no conversation about the emergency manager uh, system in Michigan, which seems to me to be the most anti-democratic, anti-constitutional and is entirely political pro big government law that could possibly exist. Uh it should not be a partisan issue, Dave Johnson. Really? Can you even talk about this without discussing the politics of it? In the short term and in the long term, this is a partisan issue. In the short term, they tried to save money. They did things they were told not to do, and it ended up corroding those old pipes. But in the long term, and by the way, I am from Michigan. I visit Flint every single year, and it's just something to see what's happened to Flint. Or you go to Detroit or Cleveland or these places that that this government has ignored since the 80s, since the Reagan Revolution, since the government was supposed to start saving money and being run like a business. The deferral of infrastructure spending since Reagan, we now have a $3.6 trillion gap in infrastructure spending, and that money went went into someone's pockets instead of into infrastructure. So long-term government being run like a business, smaller government saving money, in the short-term government being run like a business and saving money, and now all of those people need health care. They need uh, mitigating special education for their lifetimes, things like that. So this is such a tragedy, but it doesn't come just out of a short-term blame. It comes out of this conservative ideology that government is bad. This shows how good government is, because look what happens when you remove government. And, and, you know, also one more thing about infrastructure. Economist Dean Baker brought up a couple of days ago, he said, when you don't spend on infrastructure as a politician, what you were saying is we do not want to give people jobs because jobs right. on infrastructure are have to be done here and they cannot be outsourced. Yeah. So they're yep. denying a jobs program. And, and to keep wages down. Heather, is, uh, the, is uh, Ted Cruz is still blocking aid to Flint, is he not? Uh, he and, and his, his pal Mike Lee, are, are they not, uh, blocking? 
talking. I mean, how could you not ask Ted Cruz directly about this after he had, at least for a while, blocked any action on this? Well, I don't think I don't think that Fox News really wanted to get to the bottom of this. I think if they, I mean it was nice that they asked a question, but the fact that they framed it as you know both parties are very concerned. I mean this is nonsense. There's evidence that the governor's office was aware of what was going on and absolutely either ignored it or consciously decided not to do something about it. So you know no, they didn't put the lead in the water. They didn't go in and actually put it in there, but they knew it was there and they did nothing. And that's a Republican thing. It's just as Dave said. I mean, this is just an ongoing issue over and over and over again. But why would they not ask them about what the solutions are? Well, look at what, they, what the solutions they came up with for Katrina, uh, which were to privatize everything and uh, basically you know, roll everything back to some corrupt local governments, I- even worse. So and, and I wouldn't s- expect that we'd get anything satisfying out of, out of them if you were to ask them for a solution. And the solutions they are coming up with to Donald Trump. And I got to cut this short. I want to give each of you a 20 seconds closing statement here. But after all of that time throughout that entire debate and all of these days, calling him names, calling him a con man, calling him everything else. At the end of the night, they asked each one of them, uh, John Kasich, Ted Cruz and uh, Marco Rubio, would they still support him if he was the nominee? Every single one of them, all three of them said, "Uh, yeah, he may be a con man and a fraud and a phony, but I'll support him. Uh, your thoughts on this uh, very, very quickly, uh, Dave Johnson. Well, it's just one of the more remarkable parts of this whole thing. Uh, yeah, we're watching the the party have no legitimate reason to be a political party anymore. Is what I think from this. I hope a lot of people see this. This might be, this might be the situation where having a, the word Republican on your name on the ballot. All the way down to dog catcher could be a real problem this November, and that's what I'm hoping. Heather, your closing thoughts? I'm with Dave on that 100%, and I really hope that that's, that's going to be the way that it's, it's seen by most people, which is not just that it will have an effect on the presidential level, but that that kind of just rank hypocrisy is seen as the, the rot at the center of the Republican Party, and it does flow all the way down, um, because... This really is, it's the crucible for, for the modern conservative movement and the Republican Party, and they're going to have to, I mean, I think after November, we're going to see a whole different political landscape than we've had before. That is Heather Digby-Parton of, uh, of Salon and Digby's blog, digbysblog.blogspot.com. You should, uh, as ever, check out her work there and at Salon, uh, as well as on the Twitters, where she is Digby56. My thanks to you, Heather. I look forward to talking to you again soon, whenever that may be. Uh, Also, my thanks to Dave Johnson, senior fellow at the Campaign for America's Future. Check out his work over at OurFuture.org and on the Twitters at D.C. Johnson. Thanks to both you guys. Thanks for having me on. And one more thing. Yes, sir. What Digby said. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Uh, (laughs) Thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and uh, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of the program today, download it for free at bradblog.com or over at iTunes. Drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And follow me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at TheBradBlog. That's it. Until we meet again, good luck, world. (laughs) 